0: Resist the one who is evil. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. I'm glad that you're here joining with us as we worship together, as we pray, as we sing. And now as we open up God's word to consider what Christ Jesus is teaching in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through the book of Matthew and, and as I just mentioned, been several weeks looking at perhaps the, the most famous of all of Jesus's teachings, and that is that collection of teachings that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And we've arrived at a portion of this sermon where Jesus teaches about retaliation, that is seeking revenge against others for the wrongs that they've done to us. So rather than doing unto others as, as we would want them to do unto us, we're doing unto others as they have done to us in a negative sense, speaking about retaliating. Now, out of all the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, R.C. Sproul referred to this passage, together with the next one on loving your enemies, as the most challenging, the most radical, and the most difficult for us to hear. And I trust that we'll find that to be the case as we look through these verses together. I fully expect that any self-respecting, red-blooded American will be decidedly uncomfortable with the full implications of Christ's teaching here. And in fact, if I preach this text in a way that does not make you uncomfortable, that does not make you want to lessen its impact on your life, I've not been faithful to the text. Jesus is telling his followers that they must never retaliate. More than that, We are not to insist upon our own rights, but instead are supposed to willingly lay them down, even in the face of mistreatment by others. More than that, we are to respond with kindness towards those who wish us evil. So as we walk through this uh, group of verses together, first we're going to take time to establish the principle that our Lord is putting forth. Secondly, we'll look at each of the four examples that he gives. And then thirdly and finally, we'll examine that, uh, what applying these verses looks like in our daily lives. So we'll look at the principle, the examples, and then the application. Let's look first at, at the principle that is being taught here in verses 38 and the first part of verse 39. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. In the familiar pattern that we've seen repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with, you have heard that it was said and follows up with, but I say to you. As with prior passages, Jesus is not changing God's law. He is exposing how its true meaning had been diluted and distorted. And that is the case here. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, well, where was that said? Well, that was actually said many times in Scripture itself. In speaking of how to exact punishment for a person who injures another, Exodus 21 teaches, but if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Leviticus 24, 19 to 20 says, if anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. And that might strike us as as rather harsh. But truly, as an instruction to judges and to courts of law, the teaching of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth seeks to ensure that justice is served when measuring out punishments for those convicted of a crime, and that that justice is neither too harsh or too lenient. The punishment must fit the crime. So within this context, the principle of an eye for an eye is wise, and it is good, and it does much to protect the general welfare. Too harsh a punishment, and the people will grow angry against their authorities and rebel. Too lenient uh, of a punishment for a crime, and people will start to take matters into their own hands judges and courts and authorities and nations must bring about justice. After all, authorities are ordained by God specifically for the purpose of punishing evil. Romans 13 teaches that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. It says that they do not wield the sword in vain, but they are God's servants as an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It's important for us to grasp that the law cannot forgive 70 times seven. This would lead to anarchy, and it would be a great harm to all its people. So Jesus is not contradicting the right application of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Rather, he is teaching against the fact that the teachers, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees of that day were taking instructions that were meant to guide the legal system and they were using them to justify personally retaliating against others so long as you didn't exceed what was done to you. Our culture teaches the same thing, doesn't it? In fact, it teaches a whole lot more than that. How many of the movies that we watch and enjoy truly just center on the plot point of the main character going out and getting retribution for what wrong was done to them. And it's presented in such a way that we are rooting for and enjoying their quest for vengeance. How many YouTube videos go viral because we get some sort of cathartic experience watching someone take back what's theirs and and get what's owed to them and give back as good as they can get. There's something inside us that finds that appealing. And as we see in this passage, that is not necessarily a healthy reality in us because that is not the attitude of Christ. Jesus does not set to give proper limitations and boundaries on when and where we can seek retaliation. He says, do not retaliate at all. Do not resist the one who is evil. Note that Jesus says that we are not to resist the evil person. Of course, we're talking about an actual human individual. We're not about resisting the evil one. We're supposed to resist the devil. We're supposed to flee from temptation. All those things are true. He's saying, don't resist an evil person, which means don't, don't push back against. Don't, don't set yourselves against or forcefully oppose someone who seeks to do you harm. Note also, he does not teach that we should not avoid an evil person, that we should not seek to avoid ones who would do us harm. Proverbs twenty seven twelve says, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. We can certainly avoid an evil person or a harmful situation, but when we cannot, we are not to resist or, or push against or forcefully oppose those who are against us. Our passage isn't saying that that we shouldn't seek to avoid people in situations where we're likely to be mistreated. The principle that Christ is proclaiming is simply this. If someone mistreats you, oh well, don't worry about it. Don't push back. Don't retaliate. Matthew Henry comments, small injuries must be submitted to and no notice taken of them. Though we must not invite injuries, yet we must meet them cheerfully in the way of duty and make the best of them. Now that seems rather un-American, doesn't it? Pretty demeaning. It is far too humbling, far too weak for that to be a right interpretation of the text, isn't it? In a culture that is filled with petty tyrants, where discourse means that personal attacks have replaced the free exchange of ideas, where people sue one another at the drop of a hat, are we inclined to simply accept wrongs that are done to us? In a world where others mistreat us, are we prepared to simply just let it go? Well, try as you might, and many have tried. Christ will not let us get around the radical meekness that he is advocating here. And so he provides four distinct examples to drive home his message. Let's look secondly at those examples that are found in verses 39 to 42. We'll deal with them in turn. uh, First, verse 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, the word slap here means what you think it means it means to strike with an open hand. It does not mean to hit with a a punch or a, a closed fist. It's important that you understand that this example here is not about assault, it is about insult. This is not about being assaulted. It is about being insulted. Notice how Jesus explicitly mentions being slapped on the right cheek. Well, Bible commentators are pretty much agreed that given that that most everyone in that day and culture was right-handed, this indicated a, a backhanded slap. That's how you would strike someone on the right cheek with your right hand and that was an especially humiliating form of insult in that day. And, and ours too, frankly, for that matter. If someone, if someone smacks you with the back of their hand, not only are they seeking to, to inflict pain, that is humiliating. They are seeking to, to get a retaliation from you and, and start something. So Jesus is not prohibiting defending yourself or others from a violent attack. It is not a right application of this passage to say that 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 Christians are forbade from self-defense, protecting their family if a criminal breaks in. That's not what this is about. He's saying that when you are insulted, even painfully or physically insulted, you are not to respond in kind. Do not retaliate. Don't repay evil for evil. If someone insults you, ignore it. Don't be quick with a comeback. Don't if someone seeks to humiliate you or or even slap you, what's well, better to stay in a position where they could do it all over again than to take revenge on them either physically or verbally retaliating. Teacher, Bible teacher Alexander McLaren wrote that the disciple is to meet With a manifestation, or sorry, to meet evil, with a manifestation not of anger, hatred, or intent to inflict retribution, but of readiness to submit to more. And that is rather uncomfortable for us to contemplate. It's not very manly for us to consider if I was out in public and someone insulted me if someone slapped me, if someone you know, tried to get the better of me, I'll do nothing. I'll stand there and take it. We wonder if, if we are strong enough to be seen as that weak. But is that not the example that Christ left for us to follow? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 23 says, for what credit is it to you when you sin, or are mistreated and endure it. But if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. For to this you were called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, threatened no retaliation but committed himself to God who judges justly. We are not to retaliate, oppose, or push back against those who seek to insult us. And if that is true for a backhanded slap, how much more true is it for a backhanded compliment? Or a snide remark? Or a cutting insult? As a Christian, you are not to retaliate. Even if your refusal to retaliate is seen as weakness in the eyes of others or in your own eyes. And if that example was not difficult enough for us, Christ provides another. Let's look at verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Here we have a person who's being sued for, for their personal possessions, in this case, their tunic. And, and to understand this, we need to have a brief lesson on first century fashion in the ancient Near East. The tunic was the inner garment. It was it was like a shirt. It was softer. It was breathable, um, but it was long. It went down to your knees or below. And, and so we have here someone who's literally being sued for the shirt off their back. The cloak or the coat was not only the outer garment, but it also served as their covering at night. It was sort of a coat slash blanket. So when you're picturing people in Jesus's day going to their closet to see what to wear, uh, imagine no closet and nothing to wear. They had maybe one or two shirts. They would have only had one cloak, one coat. This is not a situation like you and I have, where we have many options and many things available to us. And this, this cloak, this coat, was such an essential item of clothing that, that Jewish law actually prohibited keeping a person's cloak as a pledge to pay a debt overnight. You could take their cloak, but you need to bring it back to them at sundown. Otherwise, they'll have nothing to cover themselves with at night. And here we have Jesus saying, that if someone is taking you to court in order to sue you and you've got nothing of value other than your shirt, rather than fight back tooth and nail in the legal system, you should give more than what is asked for, even beyond what the law would ever grant. Now, there are a couple ways that we can understand this scenario. In either case, it seems best to understand that this lawsuit is, is valid. In some sense, for allowing yourself to be unjustly extorted by unscrupulous and litigious people is is no virtue. This would not be good stewardship of your resources or protecting your family, whom you are to provide for. To just go, oh, I'm being you know uh, sued for an unlawful reason. I'll make no legal defense. That's not what this is about. Christians can make use of. The legal system when it is right to do so. We even see that in the Apostle Paul when he makes use of his right as a Roman citizen. So what are the scenarios that this might be picturing here? Well, the first possibility is that there is the threat or the expectation of a lawsuit, and the course of action that Jesus instructs is that you ought to go above and beyond in coming to terms with them rather than duking it out in court. A few verses earlier... Jesus said, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Speaking of the shame of lawsuits between believers, the apostle Paul said, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded than go to court? That's one possibility. A second possibility is that there already was a judgment from a court that you were to hand over your tunic to the plaintiff. And Jesus is saying that you should not only do so willingly and without grumbling, but you should give even more than what was asked as an expression of your desire to make things right. In either case, Jesus is teaching that if we are brought before some court or authority for arbitration, we are not to be focused on getting away with making as little restitution as we possibly can, nor are we to focus on extracting as much as we can from the other individual. Instead, we are to be meek, humble, even generous towards those who would be set against us. We are not to retaliate in kind. Now, are, are there exceptions to such things that would be dictated by wisdom and guided by other passages of Scripture? Surely, yes, there are. But don't let the potential exceptions blind you to the primary exhortation as Christians, we are to place a higher value on ending quarrels and avoiding aggressive action than we do on protecting our own rights and assets. And that too is very difficult to swallow. Christ continues to a third example. Verse 41, If anyone forces you to go one mile go with him two miles. This is in reference to a system started by the Persians, carried on by the Romans, where a soldier or other official could force someone to carry their burden for up to one mile. In, in the Persian system, they had a, a very early version of, of the American Pony Express, where there was a system of letter carrying. They could force you to take that letter up to one mile in a different direction. In, in the Roman day, the soldier could come to a civilian and force them to carry their pack or, or even use their animal to transport something, and you had to obey. It was a law. You had no choice but to obey. Think of Simon of Cyrene being made to carry the cross of Christ when he could no longer carry it himself to Golgotha. That was the law. But the furthest they could make you carry something was one mile. And that might not sound too bad to us, but remember they are walking in a desert. This is not a small inconvenience to be forced to go a mile out of your way. And where are you when you finished your task? You are a mile from where you were supposed to be. You got to walk back. This is a two mile inconvenience walking, carrying someone else's stuff. Most likely a difficult and heavy burden. Would we not rebel against the idea of a postal worker stopping their truck at your house on your way to work and forcing you to drive a letter to Crookston for them? Even if that was the law of the land. So what does Christ say they are to do if a Roman soldier, an occupier of their nation forces them to carry their gear by which they subdue and subjugate their own people. And they have to carry it for a mile. What are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to refuse on moral grounds? I can't carry this man's pack and his sword and his armor that he uses to put my people Israel under his foot. Or do they do the job, but not a great job. Some pretty dusty dusty stuff by the time it gets a mile and I, and I drag it and I take a long time and I grumble and complain. Is that what Jesus asks? Is that what Jesus commands? How about this? How about you go twice as far as you're required to? Not only do the job, not only do a good job, do double the job that he's even allowed to force upon you. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? think of our own context. We see more and more where those with even a small amount of authority wield it in ways that are overbearing and unfair. What is to be our response? What should our default position be in thinking through scenarios? I know what I would like to do. Refuse to comply turn the tables on them and and use my rights to somehow inconvenience them. And if for some reason I am compelled to obey, I surely will not be concerned with going above and beyond in whatever task I had to do. But what would Christ have me do? That's an uncomfortable question, because I think the answer is, in most situations pretty clear. Do what is asked and do more than what is asked. Oh, how that idea strikes against my pride and my flesh and my sense of of personal autonomy and freedom and my rights. But oh, how it demonstrates that it is in Christ that our true freedom lies. Finally, we have a a fourth example that is given to drive home this principle. Verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. If someone presses for that, which they have no claim to either by begging or, or asking to borrow, what is your response? To tighten your grip on, on what is yours, or to be generous in meeting the needs of others. I think it is safe to assume that this has to do with a legitimate need. The same Bible that says, "If a man will not work, he shall not eat," does not promote being poor stewards of what we have been what we have by giving it away to those who are merely taking advantage of us. The Bible does not encourage us to give a drunk a drink. It is not loving to to indulge or to um, allow someone to do what is not healthy or right for them. But that caveat doesn't mean and doesn't make what Jesus is saying here any less radical and contrary to our flesh. We so often forget that everything we have comes from God and that we are only stewards of our possessions for the purpose of pleasing him and furthering his cause. Jesus says, if someone begs something from you or asks to borrow something, give it to them freely. In Luke 6, he teaches, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Yes, to, to give indiscriminately to every person who has their hand out would ruin your family. It would encourage slothfulness It would ultimately not help those whom you gave to. That is all true. But are any of us really likely to err on the side of over generosity in this area? I know I'm not. Christ tells us not to fret so much about whether the person in need is is truly deserving of your assistance or, or will really give it back or somehow pay you back give freely. And yes, in this fallen world, sometimes you will be taken advantage of. And when that happens, refer back to verse 39 and just move on. Remember that being generous greatly, greatly pleases the Lord. Proverbs 3, 27 to 28, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Proverbs 19, 7, One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. When you are gracious to a poor man, you are lending to the Lord, and the Lord will repay you for your good deed. How quickly a request for what is ours can reveal how attached we are to the possessions over which we are but temporary stewards on behalf of the Lord. We look at this teaching and the verses that came before, and we see there's simply no getting around the uncomfortable fact that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, instructs us to receive ill treatment and impositions and even insults, and give kindness in return. So we've seen the principle that that Christ lays down. And we've seen these four examples that make clear it is not easy, no matter how much we would like to, for us to weasel out of the implications of that principle and still be faithful to his teaching. Thirdly and finally, let's look at how we might apply this. Let's look at the application. And we've already looked at those four examples. Uh, where we're not to resist or set ourselves against the evil person who would insult or mistreat or impose upon us. So as we close, let's consider how it is that we can rightly apply this principle to our lives. We've already seen examples that have may have parallels to our everyday lives, even though we're unlikely to be sued for our shirt or pressed into service by a Roman soldier. And so there is a deeper a more heart level of application that I wish for us to consider that actually allows us to respond to these situations as we ought. And the first is to love Christ and love others. We're going to dive deeper into the aspect of loving our enemies next Sunday, but at risk of robbing from the next passage, I must point out how essential it is that our default posture even towards those who mistreat us must be one of self-sacrificing love. Romans 12:21 Do not overcome do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. 1 Peter 3:9 Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. That's what we were called to do. How can we do that? Well, we must remember Christ's love for us and intentionally cultivate a love towards others. He who died for us while we were still his enemies, calls us to serve as a witness for the gospel by loving even those who had set themselves against us. This is not an issue of, of personal pride or dignity. This is an issue of the gospel. This is an issue of demonstrating that what we proclaim with our mouths is really true of us and showing love to the undeserving as Christ showed to us the undeserving. So we must love Christ and use that love and his love for us to cultivate a love for others. Secondly, we must trust in God and not ourselves. I think this is central to understanding how it is that we can even consider these things and do them. In order to respond as Christ would have us respond, we must trust in God. Instead of retaliating or taking vengeance, we must instead leave it in God's hands and not our own. Proverbs twenty twenty two, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Romans 12, 18 to 19, if possible, so far as it depends on you, leave, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. First Peter two twenty three again, when he, that is Jesus, was maligned he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation, but committed himself to God who judges justly. Situations where we are mistreated or taken advantage of are opportunities to demonstrate to ourselves and others that we truly do believe that Jesus Christ is coming back and he will be judge over all. And so the question for us to ask ourselves is, do I trust Christ's justice enough to not enact my own? Do you trust Christ justice enough to not take matters into your own hands in case he doesn't get it right later? Our sense of fairness and justice, remember this, is distorted by our pride and our selfishness and our sin. So be reluctant to enact justice on another. Leave it in the hands of him who knows all and judges justly. Trust the Lord of all the earth to do right. But what about my dignity? What about my, my autonomy? What about my property? What about my rights? Brothers and sisters, the question we must ask is if we are willing to lay these things down in order to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Every one of us, myself included, must learn to be far more concerned with what is right than with our rights. And what is right is to love others, to trust God's perfect justice, to resist our instinct to retaliate, even if it was, is within our power and within our right to do so. Because we are called to something greater, something higher, something more like Christ. We have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Christ tells us not to resist the evil person. And if anyone slaps us on the right cheek, we are to turn to him the other also. The evangelist George Whitfield said: It is a poor sermon that causes no offense. That makes the hearer neither displeased with the preacher or with himself. With that as our definition and this as our text, I trust that this has not been a poor sermon and that it is difficult for us not to be displeased either with the messenger or the message and seeing how we either fail to or are reluctant to or sometimes refuse to do what Christ lays out for us in this passage. And so I I close with this desire that I trust is in your hearts and is mine for the situations we all face in this life. May God help us to resist the urge to retaliate, no matter how large or small the situation, and instead respond with the love of Christ, knowing that he sees all and will set all things right. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that you call us to live in ways that are impossible for us to do in the flesh. So we thank you, Lord, that you guide us by your word, that we have your spirit within us to enable us to act as we are called to act, to to have the words to say in difficult situations to keep our mouths closed and our fists unclenched when others wrong us. Lord, we recognize that we are so often concerned with with how we are treated, more so than with how we are treating others. Lord, cultivate in us a, a true belief that it is better to be taken advantage of and mistreated than it is to put ourselves in a position where we might take advantage of or mistreat others. Not for our glory, for it is certain that we will receive none in this fallen world for, for such meekness, but for yours. Help us to trust in the truthfulness, the rightness of what it is you teach here in this passage from the Sermon on the Mount. Give us the faith to follow where we desire not to go. May you get the glory for it. May we see the blessings that flow from obedience in, in relieving tension and preventing quarrels, receiving blessings from your hand for obedience. Pray all this name, all this in the name of our great example in this area, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen
1: amen we come now as we do each week to the lord's table as we think about the radical call that we've been hearing from jesus all through the sermon on the mount it is good to be be reminded that jesus doesn't ask from us something that he wasn't willing to do himself and even even in these hard words None of us have been insulted as the Son of God was insulted on this earth, and yet we have no accounts of Jesus taking a personal insult and retaliating. We do have accounts of Jesus taking in and being insulted by what they were doing with the Lord's house in a righteous anger of the abuse of of the temple and in the worship of God, but for himself. So as we, as we do turn to the, to the table, that should be in our mind of, of all that Jesus did on this earth as the perfect example, as the perfect substitute for us, as the perfect son of God living the life we could not live. We are called to follow his example but we will fail. We do fail. We have failed. And because we have failed, we trust in his success, not in our success. We trust in his finished work, not the body of work that we're able to try and build and complete in this lifetime. So in just a moment, I will invite you to come forward if you are trusting in the perfect work of Christ, if you have trusted in Him, if you are following Him. If I were calling on those who were living perfectly, we would need to have nothing up here. Myself and none of you would be coming forward. I don't call on those who are perfect. I call on those who are following the perfect Savior, who are trusting in the perfect completed works of our Savior. So if your conscience does not keep you away, and you are walking in faithfulness after Christ, then I invite you to come and grab the elements and in just a moment we will take them together. As I that you would join me in prayer. Father, we are thankful for the wonder of the gospel. We are thankful for this ordinance that you have prescribed for your church. We might have this tangible reminder both of the sacrifice of Christ and our ability to be made right with you because of it if we are trusting in his finished work. Father, bless us through this. May we be strengthened in our faith and emboldened to walk after Christ. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We read in Matthew 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he continued, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Even in that dark hour, he gave something for his disciples to look forward to, an exciting time, a feast, where they would come together again. Even though that all was the before the disciples at that point was a time that was going to be deep darkness and sorrow, both in the crucifixion of their Savior and in the trials ahead. Yet as we look at this, we can remember, we already know, it's already past, that Jesus rose from the grave and is now at the Father's hand. So we know he is there preparing for us this feast
0: that we will one day enjoy with him.